All right, how about this question? Put this up on the screen here. You've heard this question. What's in a name? Anybody know where that comes from? Where does it come from? Trish. Romeo and Juliet. (laughs) Romeo, Romeo. Did you know that because you read the e-bulletin or you knew that because you have that accent and you knew that Shakespeare wrote that? Either way, either way you knew that. Uh, yeah, the, so that comes from Romeo and Juliet, Acts, Act 2, not Acts 2, Acts 4 is what we're preaching, Act 2, Scene 2. And you know, so in that line, when she says that, what's in the name, she says it to Romeo, and she's trying to persuade Romeo to change his name, or, or to like forsake his family connection, and to marry her. And for Juliet, the name meant nothing. Romeo would still be Romeo if he had a different name. And she actually says after this, the very famous line, do you know this? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet, right? That's what she says. And and her whole point is that the name, the name means nothing. The substance of what a person is does. That was her reasoning. But as it turns out for, as it turned out for Romeo and Juliet, it wasn't in fact that easy. Because the reality is, names mean a lot. For good and ill, they're part of our identity. They link us to our history. They shape who we are. They speak to our reputation and our integrity. We ask ourselves, do do I have a good name? Do I have a good name? So what's in a name? Quite a bit, as it turns out. And that's especially true when we think about what Paul says in Philippians 2.9, the name that is above every name. It's especially true of Jesus. It was in his name that Peter healed a man outside the temple one afternoon. And we looked at that in the first part of chapter 3 in the book of Acts. That resulted in him preaching a sermon to this amazed crowd that had witnessed the whole thing. We saw that in the latter part of chapter 3. When Peter had gone to the lame man and and said to him, rise up and walk in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And within hours of all of this taking place, the religious leaders who had only weeks before seen to the arrest of Jesus, his crucifixion, now arrested Peter and John and questioned them by asking, by what power or by what name did you do this? And as we'll see in the passage today, the apostles answered by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And so what's in the name? Well, if it's the name of Jesus, everything. All the power of God to heal us. All the power of God to save us. All the power of God available to me and to you, impacting every aspect of our lives. That's what's in the name. And we need this power. We need this power because the world around us that speaks so often of power is incapable of doing what only God can do. Is incapable of saving us. And so let's read of this passage, 12 verses, Acts chapter 4. First 12 verses, I'm going to read this passage, we'll pray, and we're going to go right after it. Acts 4.1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, this uh, gathering, uh, this time in your word is about Jesus Christ alone. And so we come humble and broken to hear from you, to hear your word as it proclaims the truth of the gospel, the reality of who Jesus Christ is, his power. I pray, God, that we would focus exclusively in these moments on the name of Jesus Christ, that we would hear from your Holy Spirit as he illuminates the text to our hearts and our minds. I pray, God, that we would be able to put away every distraction Father, that we would hear from you and you would bring change to this place today. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, ready for this? Uh, for me, for me, you're going to say this for yourself. For me, Jesus is the only name worth losing my freedom for. We're going to see four of these. The first is this, losing my freedom for. He's worth losing my freedom for. Do you believe that? We heard in verse 1, as the apostles were speaking, they get interrupted by the religious leaders. They're speaking to the people, the priests, it says, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. Uh, the list of people who actually came and who interrogated Jesus is really a who's who of Israeli leadership at the time. And it says here that they literally, they came upon them, they literally descended upon them. And the word actually implies a very hostile approach. Now what's curious is even though they're coming with hostility right now, and even though uh, the appearance is that Jesus is being very threatening to the temple and its system and the nation, that a little later on in Acts in chapter 6, we find out that, this is chapter 6 verse 7, that a great many of the priests become obedient to the faith. And so even though they're coming with hostile intent right now, we know that the Holy Spirit is working. God was working in all of this. And even when it looks very bad, even when you're preaching a sermon as these men were doing and leading people to Christ, sharing the light of the gospel, 
God allowed and ordained that these religious leaders would oppose it and carry off the very preachers who were bringing that gospel. We would look at that at face value and go, that's a bad thing. The gospel now is not being preached. And yet, barely two chapters later, these priests are coming to faith and becoming part of the church and receiving Jesus as their Messiah and their Lord even when it looks very bad, even when interrupted, even when opposed, even when persecuted. God is at work, amen? God is at work in it all. Now, leading this whole group was this group called the Sadducees. And uh, we need to understand them. We hear much more about the Pharisees in uh, the Gospels. Uh, But right now, this is a focus on the Sadducees and understanding these two parties, or we could even say it this way, kind of like denominations within Judaism at the time. Uh, These were two of the three, the Essenes being the third. Well, these Sadducees who are mentioned here were the political uh, the politically powerful, wealthy, aristocratic, priestly class in Israel. They controlled the temple operations. They controlled the Sanhedrin, which was the Council of Seventy. Uh, they were uh, cooperators with the Roman Empire. Because of their wealth, their cooperation with Rome was really motivated by their desire to protect their wealth, to protect their power. And so what they wanted was the status quo. They didn't want anything to disrupt the peaceful coexistence that they had negotiated under Roman occupation. And in fact, the Romans, because of their cooperation, had rewarded them handsomely and given them great power in Israel. From a theological standpoint, because they're running the temple operations and because they are priests, from a theological standpoint, they're actually fairly liberal or what we would consider liberal in their theology. For example, they denied the existence of angels. They denied the existence of demons. They denied the uh, immortality of the soul. They denied the resurrection. Sounds like your average United Church. For them... That was an awkward laugh, but uh, it's, it's well documented. For them, uh, the message of the apostles was subversive, representing a very real threat to their way of life. Now, in contrast to the other group that we know better, the Pharisees, the Pharisees opposed Jesus and his message on theological grounds. The Sadducees opposed Jesus and his message on political and economic grounds. And so this group, motivated by wealth and power, verse 2 says, got greatly annoyed. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching, these apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus. You see it there, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now that seems like a theological thing. They certainly didn't believe in the resurrection, but it's really a political and economic thing for them because such talk would unleash in the rank and file, the regular Jewish people, it would unleash this expectation and this hope that this was actually the Messiah and that would unleash a potential revolution that Rome would see as subversive and would squash and would compromise the Sadducees' ability to retain their wealth and their power. Verse 3, and they arrested them. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, in terms of time stamps on all of this, 
You have to recall that all of this started around 3 p.m. at the afternoon prayers in the temple. The beggar, the lame man was there at the gate, the beautiful gate, as Peter and John were going to the temple for afternoon prayers at 3 p.m. Sunset uh, was likely between 7 and 8 p.m., and so they've been preaching and teaching. They heal the man. They go into the temple. A crowd gathers. Immediately, they start preaching and proclaiming uh, the message, and it's like four, and four to five hours of that. Leading the people to an understanding of the gospel. I imagine it was Peter teaching and then John was doing some. And then some of the other apostles were adding their witness to it. I imagine there were side conversations. And just like we have leaders up here at the front at the end of the service. That you might have some questions or need some prayer. And there was counseling going on and reasoning back and forth over this four or five hours in the temple. But it resulted... All of that and them being arrested and detained. In other words, and this is the point we're driving at here, they lost their freedom. Now freedom, as we think about it, is probably the highest value in Western democracies. And we know that because we fight wars on the basis of freedom. We know that because in 1982... Uh, we uh, repatriated our Constitution, and a section was written and added to it that was called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This is the highest value in Western democracies. We know this because, you know, Remembrance Day was just a couple of weeks ago, and I attended the ceremony at Memorial Square downtown with two of my sons, and once again... While we were there, we paused in silence to remember those who had paid, this is the quote you always hear, who paid the ultimate price for our, for our freedom. And listen, that's an awesome thing. It's an awesome Canadian thing that we have going on. But the question for us as Christians, you ready for this now, my Canadian friends? The question for us as Christians is this, because our primary citizenship at the moment that we receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, our primary citizenship shifts from whatever earthly national citizenship we have to that of a better country. The preacher in Hebrews said this in Hebrews 11, a better country, a heavenly one. I am am first and foremost a citizen of the better country, the heavenly country, the one we're awaiting. And if that's true, if my primary citizenship is there, if it's been transferred, then is earthly freedom the highest value? And the answer has to be no. And Peter and John certainly didn't think so. And the reality is we may have to surrender earthly freedoms, the freedom to do as we please, the freedom to choose, to go where we want to go, to live our life as we decide these things. We may have to satisfy, sacrifice these earthly freedoms to demonstrate the worthiness of Christ. And for many believers around the world, this isn't even a decision. It's forced upon them. We have a hard time understanding it, but there are many Christians around the world today who are sacrificing their freedom, their earthly freedoms, 
as they face persecution and sanction and fines and imprisonment and beatings and even death for the sake of Christ. Our prayer list each week features um, a focus on the persecuted church to have you pray for that. It comes out midweek. In our prayer list this week, it featured a family in Vietnam or the situation in Vietnam. And and I'm going to read this. As one of the few remaining communist-run countries, Vietnam is a difficult place for Christians to live. New believers are often forced to leave their homes. Children of believing families are asked to leave school or are discriminated against while at school, not given the medical care or attention they need. Would you follow Jesus? Would you keep following Jesus? If you had to lose your home over it, if your kids got kicked out of school, if when you showed up at RVH they said, I'm sorry, you're a Christian, we can't treat you, would we continue to follow Jesus under these circumstances? Goes on printing. Printing the Bible is restricted in Vietnam, making reading or even owning a copy of God's Word difficult. One man reported that his extended family worked with the authorities to chase him out of his home after he came to faith in Christ. Would you be okay if your brother or sister, if your parents, if your children reported you to the authorities? Would you sacrifice your freedom because Jesus is worthy of that? He and his family are displaced from their home and are continuing to face persecution for their faith. Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to live like that? Would you give up your freedom for the gospel? For the name that is above every name. I mean, we don't want to even give up cable for Jesus. Jesus is worth it, isn't he? We'll see this next. Jesus is also the only name worth believing in. Luke inserts an aside here. Peter and John, you know, they're being led away. And then kind of like meanwhile, back at the temple, verse 4, many of those who had heard the word believed. They believed what Peter and John were preaching. They believed that Jesus Christ was and is the one and only Son of God, that he came to this earth, that he gave his life on the cross, that he was buried and on the third day was resurrected from the dead. They believed it. And the number of men, the number of people in the church came to about 5,000. We're not sure if that's, by the way, just men. Could refer to people, could be that it was just men and women and children were besides this. It could be that 5,000 was the total number of the church at this point. The point being that the acceptance of the gospel and the growth of the church was continuing unabated despite the persecution and pressure. It was continuing despite opposition, despite the fact that it was being led by fishermen untrained, uneducated, despite that it was, it didn't have a building to do ministry in, that it was brand new, that it had a message that was kind of out there, resurrection. It grew unabated 
because this was something that people were saying was worth believing in. The people have become disillusioned with the religion of the day. The temple was the only thing they had. They had local synagogues, but all of the worship was focused on the temple in Jerusalem. And the people were well aware that the priests were corrupt. In fact, Jesus had called them out. It was so well known in Luke chapter 19. Jesus goes into the temple and and he, he clears the money changers out of the temple. He calls out very publicly the corruption that existed in the religious system of the day. And it says that when he did that, because the people knew it was corrupt, because Jesus was doing something that was so bold and calling it out, the, the text actually tells us in Luke 19.48 that all the people were hanging on his words. They were looking for something to believe in. Something worth believing in. The people we rub shoulders with in Barrie, Simcoe County, are just like the people the apostles were preaching to. Same daily struggles and same bitter disappointments with religion. Just over half of Canadian respondents, according to an Ipsos a poll that was uh, put out in March 2017, just over half of Canadian respondents say that they believe religion does more harm than good in the world. Why do you think they believe that? Well, probably for the same reason that first century Jews were disillusioned with their own temple priests. Because there was corruption. Because bad things were happening. This perception that Canadians have that religion is bad is based on many factors, but primary among them, I believe, are these three reasons. Use these hashtags. Christians behaving badly, pastors behaving badly, and churches behaving badly. Let's just admit it. People are turned off by the gospel. They're turned off by the church. They're turned off by Christians and by pastors. And the big tragedy of of this is that the world isn't offering any kind of alternative that satisfies people. So people are just lost. And so while many pastors and churches and Christians behave badly and hinder the gospel, the hopefulness is this. When churches, pastors, and Christians get serious about living out and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, I mean really living it out and really preaching the gospel and not your own pet rules, okay, preaching the gospel of life, when we get serious about that and when we demonstrate genuine love to a world that is really lost and not finding any answers. When we, when we put those two things together, the proclamation of the real gospel and genuine love, the impact is that many who hear the word will believe just as they did in the temple that afternoon. A compelling gospel saturated in love and compassion will lead many to Christ. worth losing my freedom for, worth believing in. And for me, Jesus is the only name worth being questioned over. 
We can get into so many controversies. We can offer passionate opinions about things that at the end of the day don't matter. How many people have an opinion about something? All of you do. All of you do. Some of you are more vocal about it than others, but you all have opinions about things. You're passionate about things. But most of those things, if you step, step back and did an evaluation of the things that you're super passionate about, that you have opinions about, if you step back and evaluated it as a follower of Christ in light of eternity, you would conclude most of the things you have an opinion about don't matter. Fair? Fair? My opinion is that you should repeat what I want you to repeat. Thank you. Much better. Top of the list. Top of the list of opinions that we have that we get super passionate about that at the end of the day and in eternity don't matter. Top of the list is politics. Thank you. Politics. So many opinions. So much angst. And frankly, I mean, people just always knew kind of like about me. I worked on campaigns. I've belonged to political parties way, way, way back. I've donated to political campaigns. I've known politicians. I had a desire prior to all of this and the calling of God. And really sorting all of this out to actually be in politics and do that. I've struck up a friendship with with a former member of parliament uh, for uh, this writing. And he said to me, Todd, you should have gone into politics. And nothing would have stirred up my sin nature more than if I had. I have my own opinions, but... Honestly, these days, now I don't want to be questioned or even talk about city, provincial, or federal politics. I just don't want to. I just think about it. I, you know, I, are you pro-pipeline or anti-pipeline? Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is that 756 Canadians died yesterday, and 756 Canadians will die today, and the vast majority of them will die without Christ. Pipelines don't matter. What do we do about that? What's our mandate? I know the mandate of the political parties. Let them have their mandate and do their thing. We have something that Christ has given to us that extends beyond a four-year term of a federal government. If a pollster ever came and asked me, what's your opinion on such and such, on this issue or that issue, or what political party do you support? My answer, I hope, will be Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. I don't know what Ipsos will do with this. (laughs) Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. As Christians, we need to get our priorities straight and express passion for the one thing that matters. People all around you are dead in their sin and headed for hell. We're arguing politics and sports and the environment and eating habits and getting 
healthy and all of these things. None of them are terribly bad and we should talk about them, but they shouldn't be the most passionate thing and they shouldn't be at the top of our list, not even close. We need to get on the Jesus program and let people question us about him. That's what I want to talk about. So Peter and John are in in detention and the next day, verse five, the next day, the Sanhedrin got together, verse six, and it's the high priest is there, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, they're all part of the same family, all who were of the high priestly family. These were the power brokers of the day, appointed by Rome. Annas and Caiaphas are both attested to in both Roman and Jewish historical documents. Verse 7, and, they, and when they had set them in their midst, the Sanhedrin, the, the council of 70, it was 70 elders plus um, the high priest would be 71, but they met in this kind of semicircle, and so they were placed right in the middle of that. When they had set them in their midst, verse 7, they inquired by what power, by what name did you do this? Do you think they already know the answer to the question? Hey, a good lawyer never asks a question they don't already know the answer to. They already know the answer to the question. By what power, by what name did you do this? They ask the question because they want Peter and John to incriminate themselves. Remember, this is the same group of leaders who saw to the incrimination of Jesus Christ, who crucified him by turning him over to the Romans. It's the same group. If you can see to the crucifixion of Jesus by getting him to incriminate himself, you can certainly see to the punishment of those who claim to be continuing his work and perpetuating his message. Now, what's interesting about what they ask is, I hope you noted this, they don't deny the healing. I mean, it's a fact, and there's too many witnesses, and everyone knew this guy. They fully accept that it happened, but they're still working under this false assumption that it happened, that it could only happen one of two ways. And in fact, this whole discussion had already taken place between Jesus and these leaders back in Luke chapter 11. The healing either happens by the power of God, and if that's the case, then the power brokers in the temple have a problem. Or, as they suggested in Luke 11, it happened by the power of Beelzebub. That the devil himself did this healing to cause confusion. In asking the question, they set the table, though, for Peter and John to deliver the gospel and speak of Jesus because they know, the apostles know, it's all about the name. And so when people ask you questions, when people are looking at your life, is the first thing they're thinking, is the thing that's most prominent about your life, something about Christ, is your life so remarkable and so outstanding as a result of your walk with Christ that it just causes people to come to you and ask questions about that. Live your life in such a way that that's the thing that people ask you about. I want to live my life. You could write this down. Here's our pledge. I want to live my life in such a way that people ask me about Jesus. Is that happening right now for you? Finally, for me, Jesus is the only name worth boasting about. 
Jesus had actually promised back in Luke chapter 12, verse 11, that the power of the Spirit, when needed, would come upon them. And that's exactly what we see in verse 8. Luke records here, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. God supernaturally enabling him to say what he was about to say, to be courageous, to be bold, to challenge these religious leaders, and most of all, to boast in Jesus Christ, not to boast in themselves, not to push their own credentials, not to advance their own purposes, not to make a name for themselves. So he says to them, Um, verse 9, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, you you get a sense here that that Peter is attempting, first of all, to end the discussion by appealing to their sense of mercy and common sense. Are Are we being questioned here? Because we did something nice for a guy who was living a very difficult life? Is that the reason for this inquisition? If that's the reason, why don't we just end the conversation now? Let's all agree together that it's better for this guy that he's healed. It's better for the temple that he's healed because he's not sitting there begging anymore. It's better for the people that he was getting money from. It's it's better for our entire society because this man now is going to be a productive member of society as he makes his own way through it. Let's just be thankful. Everyone benefits from the healing of this man You get a sense that that's where Peter's starting. But knowing that that wasn't going to be the way it went down, he continued to address by what means, notice he says, by what means, this is what they're really about, by what means, how did this actually happen? This man has been healed. Namely, that you should all know, verse 10, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, just sticks it to him right here, right? Not holding back, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Now, this is a rerun of what he said back in chapter 3, verse 15, in the actual sermon the previous day. This is by him, by him, by this name, this man is standing before you well. So there's no equivocation, there's no shrinking back, there's no apology. This is straight up hard truth delivered to the religious leaders of Israel. And then he goes on. To quote from the Old Testament, he's going to give it the weight of Scripture as he speaks what he says. And to show them that the Scriptures pointed to Christ. He's in front of the religious leaders now. So he says, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. This is a reference to a metaphor that's in Psalm 118, verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. And he points out their guilt in all of this as the leaders of Israel. They're the builders. They're the builders. They're the ones who killed Jesus. Jesus had had quoted this very same passage from Psalm 118, again back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, when he told the parable of the wicked tenants. And at the end of that story, the owner of the land sends his own son to the tenants of the land to get what he deserved from them. And those tenants killed the heir. An obvious reference to Jesus and a prediction of his own death at the hands of these same builders. 
Caiaphas, the high priest, is one of the ones they're talking to. He was the high priest who presided over Jesus' condemnation. He was the one who appealed to Pilate to kill Christ and do the deed. Peter's point is this. This Jesus, verse 11, has become the cornerstone. You rejected him. You are building this spiritual house of Israel and you looked at this stone and you said it doesn't fit, it doesn't match, it's not a good stone, it's roughly hewn, it's no good for anything and they took the stone and they threw it away rejecting the stone as being useful at all for the building of the house. But in fact this stone was so precious and so perfect That it wasn't just a stone that was part of the spiritual house. It was the cornerstone. And the cornerstone in the building of ancient buildings was the very first stone that was placed. The stone of utmost importance and greatest prominence. Because it set the course for all the other stones. And if the house would truly be right and structurally sound and, and plumb on all sides... That cornerstone would have to be perfect. And Peter boasts in that cornerstone. And then he says this, you know, get it underlined verse, verse 12. Get it underlined. There's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else. Alongside freedom as a great value in our country is tolerance and acceptance. And what we preach is not a popular message, but it's one that must be preached because no one else offers what God offers. No one else can save. There is salvation in no one else. There is no salvation in Islam. There is no salvation in Hinduism. There is no salvation in native spirituality. There is no salvation in whatever designer faith that you might create for yourself. There is no salvation in Catholicism. There is no, before you get angry, there is no salvation in Protestantism. There is no salvation in conservative evangelicalism. There is no salvation in any religious system. There is only salvation in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We do not preach religion of any kind, not even our own. We preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so we boast in that. Boasting is tricky. We don't even like the word. We, we, We tell our kids, don't boast, don't boast. But it is permissible at times... If you are indeed one of a kind. One of a kind. For example, you should not boast. You should not boast 
This is a completely hypothetical illustration I'm about to use. You don't believe me. You should not boast if you're elected prime minister. We've had a lot of those. You are not one of a kind. We've had a lot of them. And in fact, you should not boast at being the prime minister because not only have we had a lot of them, but you can lose your job very fast. And in fact, what we know is that you can get the job even if two-thirds of the country doesn't want you. Like I said, hypothetical. You shouldn't boast if you've won an Oscar or a Grammy. They give those out every year to lots of people. And no one, there's no one who doesn't think that it isn't rigged in some way. You shouldn't boast if you're rich and famous. It doesn't insulate you from problems. It seems to me that the most troubled people in the world live in Hollywood and Washington and they boast the most. So we need to be careful about boasting for sure unless you're the one and only. We cannot be saved, and that's what we're talking about here, by wealth or power or influence or position or accomplishment or awards or religion. These are the things that we normally boast about. You cannot be saved by making a name for yourself. So don't ever boast in any of these things. Boast instead about the name of Jesus. He truly is the one of a kind, the only one worth boasting about. So tell people when they're praising you and lifting you up, Tell them, God has been kind to me. Tell them that all that you have is the result of God's grace and mercy to you. Tell them that it's all Jesus. Tell them that the Lord blessed you. Tell them that you're grateful to God. Tell them that you know it's the Holy Spirit's work in your life. Tell people of Jesus, witness to his greatness in your life. Speak often and passionately and long about Jesus. Boast about him. Boast about the Savior who gave his life on the cross for you. Boast about the one who is raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Make Paul's words your own words. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let me pray for us. He alone is worthy. Father, indeed, you alone are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of us giving our lives for. You are worthy of the best parts of our day, of our best thoughts. You are worthy of all of our wealth, our intelligence, every blessing that we have. And I pray, God, that we would be quick to repent for times of boasting in our own strength and our own abilities as if we had anything to do with it. 
pray, God, that you would remind us a thousand times this coming week of how great Jesus Christ is. And that our lives would be spent boasting about him. There is no other name. There's no other name. 